Hello and welcome to the Midweek Podcast, produced by Fellowship Bible Church. As always, I'm Pastor Greg Baker, and joining me is Pastor Chris Pennington, and we are here to answer your Bible reading questions that have come up during the COVID-19 outbreak. And it's a bit of a monumental week, Pastor Chris. Governor Herbert has said that we have gone from, uh, well, as of tomorrow, I think it is actually, um, we go from red to orange. And so we were in this sort of hyper lockdown phase, and now we're going to be transitioning to a, the orange phase where we can be getting together in groups of 20 uh, or fewer, and that means some more fellowship opportunities for us as a church, and we want you to stay tuned to any of the updates uh, as we make those adjustments. So keep praying for our state, keep praying for our nation, and hopefully we are maybe at the beginning of the end of this process. You know, we don't want to be um, too wild and crazy. The state is saying 10 to 14 weeks in this phase, but still, it's better than it was before, and we're grateful for that. If you joined us for our Zoom call on Sunday night, Pastor Chris dropped a bit of a bomb into some of our lives by telling us a riddle. And if you want the solution to the riddle, Listen to the end of the podcast, and there we will give you a solution to the riddle. In my defense, I was just trying to fill some time because nobody had anything to say. So but it was I kind a, of jokingly said, somebody want to hear a riddle? And that's where it went. But it was a good riddle, Pastor Chris. And we've got another one, too. Um, maybe I'll share that as well. That's probably harder. Is so, that the alien one that you gave me? It's the alien one. That That is a harder riddle, I have to say. Um, it took me a long time to... Uh, think of the answer for that one. But without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into our questions. We've got four questions uh, today. And so, Pastor Chris, why don't you tackle the first one? All right. The first question comes from John 13, uh, verse 33. Jesus says in that passage, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Really, the question is, what does he mean by you cannot we can use that term in a couple of different ways uh, today. We can use that as in like you're not able to come. Uh, you are um, never going to be able to come. Or we can simply mean like when I go there, you're not going to come with me. And that seems to be the sense that Jesus is uh, saying it here. So um, what Jesus is saying is simply, hey, where I'm going right now, you're, you can't come right now. In fact, in just a little bit in chapter 14, Jesus says to them just a few verses later, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus then interacts with Thomas a little bit, and he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the way you know, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is saying he's going to go and depart from them. He's going to go and ascend in just a, a few uh, short chapters uh, after his death and resurrection. But what he says in chapter 13 is essentially, hey, you cannot come right now. But quickly follows that up to say, I will come and receive you again to myself. Well, thank you, Pastor Chris. I, that pretty much sums up the answer. I don't have much to add to that. So we'll just uh, move right on to our second question, which is, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, it mentions the Anakim. Uh, who were they? Um, how many were there? And 
how tall really were they? Um, and that's a great question. The Anakim are going to come up quite a bit. They made a few appearances earlier in the Pentateuch in the book of Numbers, and they're going to appear a few more times in the book of Joshua. They proved to be a rather fierce people. As far as how many there were, we're not sure. We know that there were isolated tribes of them. How tall they were, the Bible never actually says, but that they were large, they were a warrior-type people. They sort of made their reputation on being fearsome, warlike people. And it actually took Caleb to drive them out. He was the only person in Israel's history uh, who was able to fully drive them out. But yeah, they're, they're, they're known for their, their warlike tendencies, and the Hebrews, uh, when they thought of the Anakim, their uh, knees would knock together. Now, as far as particulars go, we have to sort of put other pieces together to know what these people were like. Apparently, the word Anak means necklace, and so uh, scholars have have theorized, putting that and some other ancient documents together, that they were people who wore a particular style of necklace uh, to set their warrior class apart. And it's also probable, most Bible scholars agree, that Goliath was a descendant of one of these Anakim tribes who'd gotten driven off. So Caleb drove off these Anakim, and Goliath was one of these people who descended from them. And we know that from the passage in 1 Samuel that Goliath was over nine feet tall. And so the, this is a, a large group of warriors. They, they, were, they bred specifically uh, to go for size and valor, and they were quite fearsome in their warlike reputation, and it took a specific work of God to drive them off. So how many were there? Well, we're not sure. We know there were enough to make the Israelites tremble. How tall were they? Well, one of their descendants, or most certainly one of their descendants, was nine feet tall. And uh, they were well known in the region for their uh, fearsome, warlike tendencies. So I hope that answers your question. It was not a small thing uh, to see these people, and it took great faith in the Lord to drive out this sort of professional warrior class of people from the land that they were about to enter. When David goes up against Goliath, he puts it in stark terms that um, Goliath is not pushing against Israel alone. He's not fighting against Israel alone. He's fighting against God. And in that sense, David's the only one who's actually seeing the height difference um, as it is. Goliath is puny compared to God and has little strength compared to God. It's one of those things that reminds us in the Old Testament, especially one of those stories that reminds us to live by faith and not by what we can see. I think sometimes, you know, skeptically, we can look at that and go, oh, how's that possible that there's giants walking around? But, you know, you think about it, uh, there's a certain tribe in Kenya that produces great marathoners because genetically they're perfect for that particular race. Not a race of people, but the 26.2 mile long race. And marathoners will marry each other, and you just have to figure that their kids are going to probably have a half a chance at being a good marathoner themselves. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in, a, in this particular culture with all this war going on with 
with these warlike people constantly at each other's throats, it shouldn't surprise us that a, a class of warrior-like people would specifically take partners that would perpetuate those tendencies and those strengths to try to perpetuate their people, their values, and their race. And so that that really shouldn't come to any surprise to us at all. All right, well, next passage actually comes from reading for this upcoming week, and uh, that's a good reminder to send in some questions if you have them. This one came a little bit ago, a couple weeks ago, but since we needed an extra question, I thought I'd pull this in. Uh, Somebody had just asked me this directly. It comes from Psalm 52 in verse 9, and it says, I will thank you forever because you have done it. And that's the question, you know, what does it mean? Uh, When we look at that passage, not having access to the Hebrew directly makes that a little difficult, but... Um, When you look at the actual Hebrew word, the word is just because you have acted, uh, you have done, (laughs) you have acted. And so the word is very general. It can mean anything from act to do, to create, to make. And uh, in the ESV, it's mostly translated as doing or acting. Um, There's a lot of variety, and I'll actually drop a little screenshot in uh, the show notes if you want to look at that, just the different ways that the ESV translates that word. In this case, I think act or what you have done makes the most sense uh, in context. There's no direct object in Hebrew, so it simply says because you have done, because you have acted, we could say. So the psalmist is praising God for acting. And how has he acted? Well, for that, you have to look earlier in the psalm, and there's a bunch of different ways he says God has acted. God has broken down his enemies. God sustains and protects him. He flourishes in God's presence like this olive tree. All of these things are God's actions towards him. So when the ESV says done it, it references everything God has done in the psalm, most likely, or you could take it as the most immediate reference there in in verse 8, and certainly that is the case as well. We do live in a privileged time, and you don't actually have to have access to Hebrew sometimes to get at these nuances. We have so many good English translations. If you know any other languages, you'll know that translations can often vary from one interpreter to another. Each is trying to give you the full sense of the original, but sometimes they vary in the words that they choose. It's the same way with Bible translation. Each translating committee is doing their best to convey the original, but they're going to make different word choices along the way. And this variety in their translation often aids us as English readers because we get a fuller picture of the original. In other words, if you heard this in three or four different translations, you'd get a better sense for what the original said. And in this case, I think... Uh, There are a couple translations that kind of fill that out a little bit. The NIV, for instance, says, For what you have done, I will always praise you. Or the NLT says, I will praise you forever, O God, for what you have done. And so it gives us a sense of what they're trying to communicate there. And uh, the ESV, the NASB, the King James, several others insert the word it, and they're using that to refer probably to the whole actions of God throughout the psalm, maybe to verse 8, but... That's a choice that translators have to make, and often just reading multiple English translations can give you a better sense of what the Hebrew says, even if you don't know Hebrew. One of the things that I like about the way the New American Standard translates that, now my favorite translation of that passage is from the NIV. I think they're, they stay truest to the Hebrew. But in that particular verse, if you look it up in the New American Standard, the NASB, they actually translate the it in italics, which means they're trying to tip you off as the reader that that word isn't in the original, that there's no direct object there, and that they're supplying it for ease of understanding. 
it's almost impossible to get an exact one-to-one translation from one language to the next. There's always going to be some level of dynamic equivalence. But our translators have done a terrific job of giving the reader little hints as to what's in the original. And so, like Pastor Chris said, reading these things in multiple translations, reading the whole context, can usually, even if you don't know Hebrew, get you pretty close to understanding what is actually there. So that brings us to our last question, Pastor Chris, which is actually a question that I'm posing. So I'm going to pose a question and then answer it. In our reading this week, we are maybe a little bit into last week too, we hit the book of Deuteronomy. And the question is, why does Deuteronomy sound different than the other books of the Torah? You know, Genesis has its own feel, Exodus has its own feel, Leviticus numbers, and then Deuteronomy sounds different from all of them. Uh, Why is it that that book sounds different from the rest? Well, so you know, the book of Deuteronomy, number one, was written in the shortest span of time from any of the other books. It was basically just written over a couple of weeks, even. Uh, Number two, it comes at a really specific time in Israel's history. God has brought Israel out of Egypt, the people rebel, and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and God is about to bring them back into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is a message for these people who haven't, you know, they've been so privileged, they've seen the miracles of God firsthand, but not to the degree that their parents did. And they're about to enter the land even though their parents didn't. And so Deuteronomy is one final exhortation from Moses to this people who are about to enter the promised land, and they are the ones who are going to carry God's covenant forward. The other reason Deuteronomy sounds different from the other books of the Torah is that it was designed to be different. Moses came from Egypt, and he was well-schooled in their legal practices. And there was a way that contracts were written specifically to obligate the members of the contract. So, for example, when you take out a loan for your mortgage at your house, the mortgage document has a standard language that the banks and the lending agencies follow. It's sort of a time-tested contractual agreement that you can almost just cut and paste the parties into. So Moses was very familiar with these sorts of treaties, these sorts of covenants. And believe it or not, he designed Deuteronomy specifically after one brand of these covenants. The way that it's laid out is there's a preamble, and then there's stipulations, there's witnesses, there's curses for breaking the covenant, there's blessings for keeping the covenant, all the obligations are laid out, the parties and their history is laid out, and Deuteronomy follows one of those treaty patterns almost to a T. And so the point of even the structure is that these people were willingly coming into covenant with God, and they were 
obligating themselves to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that love would manifest itself in obedience. And God, for his part, would bring them successfully into the land, would take care of them, would drive out the peoples before them. And if the people were faithful to keeping their end of the covenant, God would be faithful to keep his end of the covenant. If the people failed to keep their end, then that obligates God to curse them. It obligates God to take different actions, which are also stipulated in this particular covenant. The covenant gives blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And believe it or not, Deuteronomy is so precisely written in this covenant treaty sort of language that it actually becomes the pattern for God's relationship with Israel in the rest of the Old Testament. So when Ezekiel is writing, for example, he says, look, guys, God had to judge you because he would have been unjust not to. Don't you remember what he said he would do in Deuteronomy? And you disobeyed his covenant rules, and so you obligated God to drive you out of the land, though be certain God is going to bring you back into the land. And so Deuteronomy becomes like a pattern of God's relationship with Israel historically moving forward. And so that's why Deuteronomy sounds different. It was written to different people at a specific time, and it follows a special pattern that even the pattern itself obligates the Israelites to obey the covenant treaty and obligates God to the blessings and to the curses contained therein. Pastor Chris, do you have anything to add to that? Well, as New Testament Christians, I think we need to just bask in our our position um, because the book of Hebrews references that covenant and says, Christ has obtained, in verse 6 of chapter 8, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need or no occasion to look for a second. And then he quotes some Uh, passages of scripture where he describes that new covenant that God is going to make. Not like the covenant, it says in verse 9, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. He responds as he's supposed to in that treaty. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now this is God describing this new covenant declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he continues on describing the outflowing of mercy and grace in this new covenant. And verse 13 kind of concludes this way, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So we have access to God in this new covenant that the old covenant pointed forward to, that it demonstrated the need for. But suffice it to say, we're in a position now in history that we're not in that kind of arrangement with God, where um, there is this direct uh, correlation between our actions and whether or not we can be made right with God. God has intervened in this uh, unilateral covenant to us now. Absolutely. Part of understanding God's work in the law is to marvel at how God deals with us as new covenant people. And, you know, until we can really understand the holiness of God as it's 
portrayed in God's law, you know, we, we need that to really understand just how gracious God is being to us. And by the way, if you're keeping score at home and you want to know what the name is of that Deuteronomy treaty, it's called a Hittite suzerainty treaty. And so if you would like to look that up, you can do that, a Hittite suzerainty treaty. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of our questions this week. If I could just encourage everybody to remain patient. We're so excited that the, the our governing authorities are starting to lift some of these regulations. We're going to start getting back together again just as soon as we possibly can. But until then, just be patient. Stay safe. Really, I, I, I just pray the Lord's blessing on you. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you Sunday night. All right, Pastor Chris, why don't you retell the riddle that you told on Sunday night, and then we'll go through the answer very quickly. Okay, so I'll retell it um, as I think I told it. I looked it up afterwards because evidently there's another way to tell it. I don't know. I was told by junior hires, so, you know. You can never really trust junior hires. Yeah, no comment. So <laughs> uh, the, the, the riddle goes like this. Uh, there are four men in stuck in sand uh, just with their necks and up exposed. Three of them are facing one direction, and one of them is facing the opposite direction. They're all lined up right in a row. And they are told that if all of you can say um, the color of the hat you're wearing, two of them are supposedly wearing blue, two of them are wearing green. If all of you can say the color of the hat you're wearing, that's the only word you're allowed to say, no other signals, you can't turn your necks, then you're allowed to get out and live. If you can't, then you all die. So the question is, how did they escape? I don't actually have an answer for the first version. I have an answer for the other version. So the other version goes like this. I think you have an answer for the first version. The answer for the the answer for the version that I got was um so same setup with the three and one and they can't see each other's hats. Um there's only one person who knows for sure what his hat color is. Which person is that? The order in which you go is important. Okay. So um so if we if we line them up, you've got the one person facing off in a different direction, he's a distraction. Don't worry about him. And then you've got the three that are facing the same direction. Uh, the guy in the back can see two hats. The guy in the middle can only see one hat. And the guy on the end can see no hats. The guy on the end, when he looks, if he sees two hats of the same color... You mean the, the guy who can see two hats? Yeah, the guy who can yeah. see two hats. If he sees two hats of the same color... Well, then it's easy. He knows what color his hat is. If they're white, if there's two whites, he's black. But that would be stupid, and that would not be a challenge at all. So, of course, they're going to split them. And so the first guy's going to be white. The second guy's going to be black. And then the best the third in line can do is 50-50. And so he doesn't say anything because he's got a coin flip. Well, it's actually the middle guy in that stack that knows for sure what his hat color is. Because if he doesn't hear the guy behind him say anything, he knows they must be split. He looks in front of him and sees a white hat. He concludes, since we're split, I must be wearing a black hat. And that's how he solves it. When he doesn't hear the guy behind him shout out, he has to conclude, okay, we're split. 
he knows the guy in front of him is wearing white, so he must be wearing black. And that's sort of how he narrows it down, and he shouts out black, and they're safe. So that is the second way to tell the riddle, um, and I don't know if that maybe that's even the official way, um, which is basically they don't all have to say it, just one of them has to, which one can always get it right, and it's that middle of the three. Um, the other way is the easy way, and that's just saying what what would the order of hats have to be for them to get out and to all say their color, and obviously it'd be two and two. Um, so now I'm self-professedly not any good at these riddles, um, but I do have another one, and I'll end with this. And and I'm not going to give the solution for this one. I know the solution, but it's it it will turn your brain upside down. You, but think about it, because there is a solution that's actually relatively simple. There are nine people abducted by aliens. The aliens have a moral code that doesn't allow them to kill intelligent beings. So they devise a test. If the group passes it, they all live. Um, if they don't, they all get eaten by the aliens. So here's the test. The aliens will line them up by height, all facing the same direction. There's nine of them, remember, so that each one can see all the others in front of them. So tallest one in the back, shortest one in the front, looking straight down, all nine lined up. Um, they're going to put on each person either a black or a white hat randomly. So it could be seven white, two black, or five white, four black, whatever, totally random. If eight of the nine correctly say their own hat color, just like the last riddle, they're only allowed to say one word, which would be the color of their hat, then they all live. Um, if more than one of them makes a mistake, they all die. So before the aliens line them up with hats on them, they, they tell the humans, all right, you've got five minutes to devise a plan that will allow you to pass with eight out of nine of you correctly saying your own hat color. They can't do any signaling. They can't like shrug their shoulders to show something. There's no other movement or communication allowed once they line them up. So they take five minutes and they devise a plan. At that point, the aliens line them up and they say, you can only say one word, either white or black, no other signals or anything like that, or we kill you all. So they can't turn their heads. They can't make signals, anything else. What plan helps them escape? Now, listen, there's no tricks to this. You, you know, like sometimes when people hear riddles, they think, oh, there must be some like outside the box solution here. No, no, it's all inherent. You've, you've got all the information you need. There's no tricks there's a very simple way to solve this. I figured out a way to solve it, but it was a little more nuanced than it needed to be. So join our Zoom call on Sunday night, and we will reveal the answer to this question. And um, Or you can check in ahead of time. No cheating, no looking it up on the internet, and uh, we can go from there. If you want a hint, give me five seconds, and I'll give you a hint. If you don't, goodbye. All right, so the hint is, which I suppose is a bit of an obvious one, but during that five minutes, they need to obviously communicate some kind of plan. And the plan has to be that the words white or black, whatever that first person says, has to communicate something other than simply white or black. So you have to figure out what kind of code could be embedded in the words white or black that would communicate something to the rest of the alien or the, to the rest of the humans lined up in that line. Precisely. They get one miss. And they'd better make that miscount for the purposes of conveying information. That's all the information you need to solve this riddle.